Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we're taking a break this morning from the series through Mark, uh, partly because we're not to the resurrection yet in Mark, uh, and partly because this particular account of the resurrection, I think, is instructive and helpful for us this morning. So uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that we can be coming to God's Word together. So let's go in prayer. Father, we need you to speak. We need you to send your Spirit so that we can hear your voice. That we would know the good news of Jesus, that we would be reminded of it afresh. And that our hearts would be strengthened, encouraged. And we look forward to the day when the resurrection is known to all of us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, having spent years in Boston, I, I went a lot to the Museum of Fine Arts. And if you go to the MFA in Boston and you go up to the second floor, you'll find the old European master's room, which has a bunch of huge, enormous paintings, most of them Renaissance paintings. And, and you'll find one particular painting there uh, by a man named Simone Cantarini, not somebody I particularly know much about from the 1640s, called The Risen Christ. It's a picture just uh, allegedly depicting Jesus rising from the dead. And 
one of the things that's bizarre about the painting, one of the reasons it catches my attention, is that Jesus is kind of emerging like a superhero out of the tomb. He's, 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 he's off the ground. He's literally flying. Uh, he's, got, he's carrying a banner like he just won, you know, his team just won the national championship. He's, you know, in the, in the guards are laying, laying down. Most, some of them look like they're passed out. Others look like they're shielding their face. Uh, he's emerging triumphant, and it's this huge moment. It's, it's very surreal almost the way it's painted. There's, no, there's nothing about the Christian faith, there's no particular incident in the Christian faith that is more bizarrely interpreted than the resurrection. It's gotten the full treatment. Every version, every misunderstanding, every nuance of it has been in some way explored, and some, sometimes helpfully and other times not so helpfully. Uh, it's been turned into a metaphor. And there's certainly many an Easter sermon that is full of platitudes about spring coming after winter and, and life following death and all these other things. But what we need to see this morning is what the meaning of the resurrection is as the Gospels present it. And I think that we can see three things clearly in this passage. That the meaning of the resurrection is a reversal of the way of the world. And that reversal leads us to reassess the way that we see ourselves in the world. And that reassessment leads to a response of celebration. So if you're following that, that's reversal, reassessment, and response. So let's think about the reversal. Everybody knew Jesus was dead. This was no great mystery. People were well acquainted with death in the ancient world. If you were with us on Good Friday, we talked briefly about the horror of the cross, the agony of it. You were not meant to survive being crucified. Everyone knew Jesus was dead, and everyone who shows up in this story knows Jesus was dead. Mary Magdalene shows up, and we know from the other gospel accounts that she was with uh, some other women as well who were, uh, who were coming to, uh, to take care of the body. And they, there, was, uh, there were various perfumes and stuff that they would use to, to help uh, keep the smell of a dead body under control. And, uh, and in fact, she actually says we. So we, we know that <laughs> even, in this, even in this account that there were other women who were with her. But she shows up, and the body's gone. And all throughout this account, she's looking for the body. It doesn't dawn on her until her eyes are finally opened that Jesus is not dead. She's looking for the dead body the whole time. And the apostles don't understand this either. She goes, and, and, and Peter and John, John is, the, is almost certainly the the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who wrote this gospel. John, Peter and John come running to the tomb, not expecting to find anything miraculous, just to, just to see that the body had been somehow taken. And they show up, and they're not expecting anything different. In fact, verses 8 and 9 remind us they didn't get it. Uh, when it says that, that John believed, it means he, he believed that the body wasn't there. 
Now, in the next passage in, in this gospel, Jesus will appear to the disciples, and that will, all that will change. But at this point, they're just looking for a dead body. They want to know who messed with it. And why would they want to mess with it? Because after all, Jesus was a failed Messiah. Every Messiah that died was a failed Messiah. There were Messiahs before Jesus that died, and they were no longer considered Messiahs. There were those who were would-be Messiahs that came after Jesus, that led revolts. Very famously, there was one by a man named Simon Bar Kokhba in the 130s AD, and that, and that revolt led to the dismantling, dismantling of Israel as a political entity. That was what wiped Israel off the face of the map, politically. There were, other, there were other messiahs, and all of them died. And all of them were considered failures. In fact, uh, N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar who's written a lot about the resurrection, says this. He says, crucifixion meant that the kingdom hadn't come. Crucifixion of a would-be messiah meant that he wasn't the messiah. When Jesus was crucified, every single disciple knew what it meant. We backed the wrong horse. They're wondering what's going on because why would somebody bother stealing this body? Because it was already proven that this Messiah had failed because he had been crucified. But what starts to dawn on them, what begins to happen is that not only the words that Jesus had predicted about his resurrection start to sink in, But when they actually meet, when Mary, in this story, when the disciples later on meet the risen Jesus, they start to realize that something more profound than they had ever dreamed of had happened. See, because the biblical story, and we've talked about this before, those of you who have been with us, is that sin entered the world and death came with it. Death was the wages of sin, as Paul says in, in Romans. And so in the, to the biblical mind, to these Jewish disciples of Jesus, when they met somebody who had risen from the dead, it meant something profound had happened to sin. It led to a rethinking of what they had already witnessed at the crucifixion. What had gone on? If the power of death was broken, what must that mean about sin? What must that mean about my sin? About your sin? What had happened? Then they started to realize all the things that Jesus had been teaching about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And they realized that, in fact, what Jesus had done on the cross was pay for their sins. And Jesus had absorbed all that was deserved by humanity, that he had taken our place. He had done what we could not do. And because he had done that, he had broken the power of death itself. If sin had no claim on us, then death didn't either. And death had no choice but to spit Jesus back out. Death was being undone. You see, the hopes of the disciples, and these may sound familiar to us, were entirely too small. See, their hopes were for a political Messiah. They wanted some kingdom to rival the other kingdoms of this world in particular the Roman Empire, and they thought that was grand enough. I mean, the Roman Empire was big. The Roman Empire was powerful. The Roman Empire, it's hard to, it's hard to capture how important it was. 
how large its reach was, how much of a death grip it had on the Mediterranean world. They thought that that was a big enough dream. They hadn't dreamed that somebody could undo death. Because, of course, death is the great weapon of every political power. And the cross was the symbol of Rome's power over death. Power of death. But if Jesus had broken that, then perhaps they hadn't even set their, their eyes high enough. Maybe what they didn't need was a kingdom among other kingdoms. Maybe they needed a king. Maybe what they had, in fact, discovered was a king who would dismantle every human government, who would rule the world with justice, who had come not to compete with the others, but to undo all of their work and to bring in peace to this world. They had those political hopes. They also had moral hopes. They thought they were still clinging to their own sense of goodness. Now, it is true that Jesus often came into conflict with the Pharisees, with others who thought of themselves as really holding the high bar. But all throughout the Gospels, the disciples are constantly reminding Jesus, hey, you remember how much we gave up for you, right? And we've done a lot, right? Like, we're pretty good, aren't we? I mean, this is, they, they're continually going back to this over and over and over again that they are trying to cling to their goodness and they have miscalculated, in other words, the depth of the problem of sin. They wanted a moral kingdom, and that's good, but they didn't realize how high the bar was and how low their own performance was. They hadn't realized the gap was nearly so incalculable as it actually was. They didn't realize they needed somebody else to stand in their place who was perfect. They didn't realize how powerful, how good, how beautiful someone who, per- who was perfect really was. And when Jesus returns from the dead, they realize that their vision was entirely too small. They were going to need to hitch their life to this person who had risen from the dead. And not only, not only were they, did they have visions of the politics and of a kind of moral order to the world, they had a vision of being with God. All throughout the week leading up to Jesus' death, the disciples have, have, have been noting, they're in Jerusalem, they, they keep noting, look at the, the grand architecture, look at all the, these amazing stonework, there's all this amazing masonry around the temple. They talk about it multiple times during that week. They're excited for kicking the Romans out when they can control all of this and they can be with God in his temple. They didn't realize how close God wanted to be. They didn't realize that, in fact, they, didn't need those, they won't need those sacrifices anymore. And in fact, they won't have an altar that is empty. They will have the face of God in the face of Jesus. And that Jesus had already promised them earlier in this with him that they would have a closeness with God that they had never even imagined possible. That God was sending his presence not only amongst them, but in them. 
This is a great reversal of the whole way of the world. It is the destruction of sin and of death so that we could have life and wholeness, that we could enter in to enjoy the light and life and love of God. This kingdom, what's fascinating too, is that it continues to grow. And the way that it grows is as subversive as the action that created it. It is as subversive as the kingdom itself. It is not the destruction of political entities through which it grows. It is not in creating a community that is that much more holy than anybody else. It is not in the creation of a community that has a more elaborate system of access to God. In fact, it is subtle, and it comes and has spread all over the world. That Jesus' kingdom has, in fact, grown to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And to this day, it is still uh, often thought of as a white man's religion, but the truth of the matter is, statistically, it isn't that anymore. It wasn't that in the beginning. It was a Middle Eastern religion. And then most of, many of the early church fathers, most of the really significant theologians were African. It is true that it became mostly European for a time. But now, numerically, the church is strongest in Africa, in South America, in Asia. So, in fact, the subversive act of bringing in a new creation, a new world order, has is already happened when Jesus is raised, and it continues and it grows through the life of the church. Not by fighting for power, but by putting our trust in him. So it is a reversal of all those things. It is a reversal of the way that we think the world should work. And that leads, of course, to a reassessment of our lives. You notice how desperate Peter and John are? They can't figure out what's going on. You know they're desperate because they run into a tomb. I mean, most of us wouldn't want to do that anyway. But if you, if you were Jewish, you would know that the, especially in the first century, you would know that the cleanliness laws kept you from being around anything dead. Because if you, went, if you touched anything dead, if you were around anybody, but it was that you became ceremonially unclean. That's probably why John tells, you know, goes into this detail about how he stopped initially outside the tomb just to peek in. And Peter runs headlong into it. Peter didn't care about all the ritual he would have to go through, the days that he would be unclean uh, from touching something dead. He didn't care about any of that. He was desperate. He ran right in to this tomb. So they're desperate, and they leave in their desperation, not knowing what's going on. And we know Mary's desperate. You heard how many times she keeps talking about, where's this body? Help me find this body. Where's this body? We took the body. Where's the body? Can I go get it? She doesn't know where the body is. And little wonder, we know from Luke 8 that Mary Magdalene is somebody who had had seven demons cast out of her. I don't know what kind of tormented existence that was, but it must have been horrific. And she has made her new family the disciples, the followers of Jesus. 
she probably has either been disowned or no longer has extended family. In other words, what's tragic about Mary is you realize she's got nothing left but the corpse of Jesus to try to hang on to. That's all she's got. She's desperate. Where am I going to go? And think about Jesus here. Jesus is somewhere watching this unfold. And he sees John get there. John, who he, who's going to write this gospel that we've just been reading from. John, who's going to write several of the letters that go out to the church that make up the New Testament. John, who's going to receive the vision of Revelation. The very last book of the Bible. And Jesus watches him come and go. Jesus has just emerged victorious. He lets that guy go. He watches Peter come. Peter is desperate. Peter's the one who dives right into this tomb. And and it will unfold just how desperate Peter is later on in this gospel. Peter is desperate to find out what's going on with Jesus. Peter is lost. He is at sea. He's betrayed Jesus. Peter is also the guy who Jesus has said is the rock who's going to be the foundation of his church. He's a key leader. We know this in Acts. I mean, Peter is so important for the life and growth of the church in the years to come. And this victorious Jesus, who's getting on with with the work of the kingdom, after he's gone through the crisis, watches Peter come and go. Jesus will find time to get to John and and to Peter. The person who needs Jesus now is Mary. All throughout the week leading up to his his crucifixion, Jesus was single-minded about the cross. His whole attention was focused on that crisis that lay ahead. And when he passes through the crisis the first person he shows up and talks with is a woman who has nothing left but a dead body. That's Jesus' priorities. Jesus sees Mary and that he is needed there in that moment. And the people who would be instrumental to his project Moving forward, he lets them go. He'll get to them. The next passage, they meet him. He'll get to them. Mary's the one who needs him now. And isn't it beautiful how how this situation unfolds? Mary shows up. She sees these angels. This is how desperate you know Mary is. She sees these two angels, and she's not flustered. She just doesn't even care that she's seen angels. She still wants the body. And then she turns around, she sees Jesus, and this happens a few times with Jesus after the resurrection, that people don't, know, people don't recognize him immediately for who he is. Uh, something, something clearly uh, miraculous kind of goes on as Jesus reveals himself to different people. But she turns around, thinks he's the gardener. She's still asking about that body. Where is it? And then Jesus calls her name. 
Back in chapter 10 of John, Jesus said, I'm a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep by name, and they know my voice. And that's exactly what happens here. He says her name, calls her name, and she recognizes him for who he is. She cries out, Rabboni, my teacher. It's, a, it's personal. And she's clearly trying to cling to him. And Jesus isn't so much pushing her away as saying, there are, you are caught up into something so profound. I'm going back to the Father, my Father, your Father. And he's already promised again that he's going to give the Spirit so that she'll actually have a closeness to him that she's never even dreamed of. You see, all of this shows us immediately that Jesus is reassessing the values of this world. He's been teaching about it, but it brings all of what he's taught into focus. Because there's much of Jesus' teaching that sounds nice, idealistic, but terribly impractical. I mean, think of some of Jesus' greatest hits, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. If someone strikes you on one cheek, you should give him the other. Jesus says it's better to take the low place than the high place. That is better to give than to receive. Think about all those teachings that Jesus says. They all seem so impractical. And they are impractical from one angle, aren't they? It's hard to get ahead in your career that way. It's hard, to, it's hard to get what you want out of life that way. But then again, if the way of the world has been reversed, then maybe it really is better to give than to receive. Maybe taking the lowest place is really the highest thing you can do. This whole way of reassessing our lives guarantees that there's, in light of the resurrection, guarantees that there is a different way of living in this world. And that doesn't mean it won't be difficult. Following the path Jesus gives us isn't going to be easy. There may be times that it leads to failure of a sort. People won't necessarily see you as successful, won't necessarily see you as being the right person for every job. People will get frustrated with you. It may not be as lucrative. It may not be, it may not be as uh, advantageous to all the different things that we want in life. But it would be better. Because we're living into the new reality that Jesus has brought back into the world in his resurrected body. And so we can learn what it means to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The early church knew this. In fact, it was the very, it was not the kind of aberrant views of Christianity that were out there that ever led anybody into trouble or failure, but also that never saved anybody. They never stuck around in a plague. It was those who believed in the resurrection who stuck around 
to care for those who were affected by plagues. It was those who believed in the resurrection that pursued loving their neighbors to the cost of their own livelihoods and life. You see, sometimes it's portrayed as if this, as if the Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, this belief in a resurrection, is somehow about you know what you get down the road, and so you can do whatever you want here, or you can be as cruel as you want for the ends that you want here, as if somehow religion, in some generic sense, like this compromises our moral standpoint. But you see, from the biblical standpoint, when we're talking about Christianity that's about the resurrection, it does quite the opposite. It tells you that you can love your neighbor at personal cost. It tells you that you can love others and put them before yourself. It tells you that the, uh, the goals of life are not about getting in and getting ahead, but are about loving the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that's what leads us to actually live sacrificial lives for others. Is the guarantee that it is worth it because the way of the world has changed. Just this week, I don't know about I don't know about all y'all, but being stuck at home is not necessarily the easiest thing. I know that for some of you, it means there's a too much free time, and there's not many people to talk to. And for some of us, it means I'm constantly around my family, and I love my family. But sometimes I want to do things, and I want to get things done, and people need help, and people need attention, and people have questions, and people want to play a game, and people want to do these other things. And I was reminded earlier this week as I was losing it because I wasn't getting much done (laughs) that Jesus says, such are those who have the kingdom of heaven. I was reminded how much my own values had lost sight of this. That I'm so convinced that, well, I've got to get all these other things done that I think are important. But in fact, I've been given those who belong to the kingdom of heaven to care for. So my family, my family's all squared away now. We're all, you know, everything's perfect. No, 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 no. It was was just an obvious illustration where my priorities had lost track of the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. One of my favorite prayers ever is called The Valley of Vision. It's the the title of a book. There's a book with that name. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And the first prayer is called The Valley of Vision, where the book gets its name. And I'll just read you a part of it. So this is part of that prayer. It says, let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. 
that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. So where are your priorities? Are they the priorities of the kingdom of heaven? Does that seem just a little too idealistic? Well, Jesus has been raised from the dead. The kingdom has already begun where those are the values, those are the ways that the world will work. So which kingdom are you living in? So it causes us to reassess. This reversal causes us to reassess. And it also calls on us for a response. Because once we start to see how powerful that kind of kingdom would be, how beautiful it is that Jesus has risen from the dead, that we can live in a world in which we are filled with the love of God and love of others. Where we see the beauty of Jesus and all that he's accomplished in giving his life for us and taking it back up so that we would be freed from death itself. You can't help but celebrate. This is what Mary does, right? Jesus says, go and tell them that, they, that my father, my God has become their father, their God. And that's what she does. She shows up, I've seen Jesus. I've seen him walking around. This is the, the, she can't help but celebrate this. In fact, this is one of the bizarre things about the gospel accounts is that the first people Jesus showed up to were women. It's a, uh, it's a fact, historically, that both in Jewish law and in Roman law, women's testimony was illegitimate. It was not considered reliable. If, and you may have lots of feelings about that, fair enough. If these stories were made up to convince you to believe in something that wasn't actually true, they never would have begun that way. But Jesus, in reversing the values of this world, shows up to women first. And especially to Mary. As we said, one of the most desperate people you could imagine. Those are his priorities. And they can't help but celebrate it. This is the thing we're celebrating. There's no other news that's better than this. You think about when you get good news. Maybe you get, maybe you get an amazing new job. Do you just kind of hang up the phone and go back to folding the laundry? No, you're texting people, you're calling your mom, you're, call, you're, doing, you're, you're telling everybody that you know, right? When you get engaged, this is what you do, you know? You call, you're calling everybody, you're doing, you know, Facebook blast and, do, you know, whatever it takes to get the word out about this amazing thing that's going on. When you have a, when you find out you're expecting, right? Just, these are the kinds of things you do. In fact, with a lot of these major milestones, you have to make a list, Right? And you have to make the list, not because you, you're worried you won't tell them. You're worried you're just going to just blab to everybody you happen to run across before the most important people in your life. You get a chance to talk to them. Because you're going to talk about it. You're going to tell everybody about it. Why wouldn't you tell anybody about it? You're going to tell the person you're standing in line on, by in the grocery store, if you could be in line at the grocery store, about it. 
You're going to talk about it. These are the things that we do when something amazing, profound, that changes our life happens. So what about something that's so profound that it changes the very way the world works? Of course we celebrate it. You see, Mary's story, this is, this is what's so amazing. Mary's story isn't, look at all these things Jesus gave me. Think, look at how my life is all fixed up now. No, her life is still a mess. Nothing about her situation in terms of her finances has changed. Nothing about her, her security and, you know, socially has changed. I mean, hopefully the churches look, will look after her. <laughs> assume, I assume that they did. But what has changed is that Jesus has showed up. And so, so many times Christians have made evangelism into a task that is tedious and look, if, you're, if it's not actually something you care about or are excited about, why would anybody else be excited about it? And sometimes we've made it into a thing about telling our own story of sort of personal growth and personal advancement. And no doubt, I don't, do not doubt that Jesus changes our life. But the good news is not about how your life got better. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about how he went to the cross and how he was raised from the dead so that we all might be brought before God. That we all might enjoy a nearness with God that we couldn't possibly imagine. That the power of sin and death has been broken. That we can have a whole life with him. That's the good news. That's why Mary can't help but tell it. Because it's profound because it's bigger than, than the fall of the Third Reich. This is, a bigger, this is bigger news than any news that could come up. If they came out with a vaccine tomorrow for coronavirus that everybody could get this week, it would be bigger news than that. It would be bigger news than if your political party wins the election this year. It's going to be bigger news than any possible change we could imagine because this is about all of the evil and sorrow of the world working backwards. This is why they can't help but celebrate. This is why Mary has got to talk about it. This is why it is good news because of the extent of God's love and the extent of the change that Jesus is bringing into this world. So to a guilty world, this is forgiveness. To a corrupt world, this has changed hearts. To an unjust world, this is the promise of a world set right. To a sick world, this is the guarantee of health and life. And to an anxious world, this is the promise of provision. In a depressing world, this is joy beyond measure. In an alienated world, this is a nearness to God that we can enjoy now, in part, and one day we'll know more deeply than we could ever imagine. Is it too good to be true?
Well, as my children's Bible says, is there anything too wonderful for God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have raised your son from the dead, that all of our hope, the hopes we didn't even dare to hope, are realized in him. We praise you that Jesus is arisen. We praise you that even now he is with you. And we praise you that he is returning. And that one day we will know what the full resurrected life is with you forever. We praise you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.